So good morning, guys. Hope everyone's well, keeping warm. It's a chilly morning today. Okay, so I see you've still got a couple of people joining. We'll start in a couple of minutes. Hey, good morning. Welcome to the first in our Focus on Food webinar series. It's good to see so many of you here. Hope you get something out of it today. Um, we'll just proceed with the presentation. Uh, this is going to be a, a monthly webinar series and uh, each month we'll focus on uh, a different topic, which is hopefully important to food manufacturers. Uh, the focus today is on basic food microbiology, uh, particularly pathogenic bacteria. So just a brief overview, uh, the Focus on Food service is a, it's a brand new offering from ALS that provides additional support for our food business clients, um, hopefully presenting technical information and tools in a, an easy to understand format. The basic package is free to all ALS food clients. Uh, you need to subscribe, um, but the basic free package includes access to our method summary and video libraries, uh, technical summaries, and quite a bit more. Um, there's a, a premium service that's also available, uh, $20 a month extra, it includes some additional content which incurs a cost for us, such as these monthly webinars, uh, reduced consultancy rates, access to templates, downloads, white papers, a couple of newsletters, a regulatory newsletter and an industry-focused one, We've got an Ask the Expert forum and more stuff coming online all the time. So we're adding to this on a, a daily and weekly basis. The tools themselves have been specifically designed to be a benefit to uh, small business owners, quality managers, and those basically with the responsibility for the food safety function of the business. So before we get into the presentation uh, itself, I'd just like to get a a feeling for who's attending the webinar and what sort of roles you have. So I'm just going to launch a, a simple poll. Um, just leave it on the screen for 30 seconds. If you just click the role that most closely fits yours, um, we'll then proceed to an overview of the, uh, the presentation for today. Okay, so thanks for that. That's good participation there. Uh, just share the results and we can see um, majority of you over 
have a, a quality manager or a quality supervisor role. So uh, that's great. Thanks for taking part in that. Uh, we'll move on to have an overview of the uh, today's webinar. So today we're going to cover uh, the following topics. Um, firstly, basics of microbiology, including the main characteristics of key organisms, uh, their importance in food production, uh, the structure and classification of bacteria, intrinsic and extrinsic factors affecting microbial growth, uh, how these can be used to control the microbial levels in food products. Then we'll take a closer look at some pathogenic bacteria, their characteristics, uh, followed by some information on lab testing, setting specifications, etc. So this webinar is part one of two introductory webinars. They're providing a basic grounding in microbiology for non-scientists, but obviously people who still need to have an understanding of how microorganisms impact the food and drink products that we're all involved in making. So this first webinar will be looking in closer detail at bacteria and specifically pathogenic ones, the ones that can make people sick. Uh, the next webinar will be looking closely at spoilage organisms, um, those that basically affect the quality of your finished products and we'll focus there on uh, yeast and mold. So what's microbiology? Um, I guess from a, from a regulatory perspective, uh, a basic understanding of, of food microbiology is essential uh, for food business owners and operators, due primarily to the potential to cause serious harm or you know, at the worst death to consumers if not taken seriously. Uh, the awareness of microbiology in relation to food products and manufacturing, um, it's essential. Demonstrate due diligence and to implement effective food safety controls. So essentially microbiology is a study of all living organisms that are too small to be seen with the naked eye, very basic. Uh, microorganisms include bacteria, viruses, fungi, protozoa and algae, collectively known as microbes. Our opening two presentations in this series will be focusing on bacteria and the next one fungi, yeast and molds. They pretty much account for the vast majority of issues related to uh, food spoilage and food poisoning and they impact directly on the, the safety and quality of the products that you all make. So why is microbiology so important to food production? Um, we touched on it, it's primarily because of the, the vast potential to cause harm either to the final consumer or to the quality of the product itself. So there's a legal and a commercial obligation for manufacturers and food producers to make food that's safe to eat. An understanding of food microbiology can help when creating new products and it reduces the chance of having to recall or withdraw a product that you later find out is unsafe to eat. So distribution of, of microorganisms, well, there's, there's no getting away from them. Uh, they're ubiquitous, which means everywhere in every environment on earth. So this means that the design and construction of processes and facilities needs to pay close attention to uh, possible uh, routes of ingress of microorganisms. So that's where and how can they be introduced into the main production area. 
some of the most common ways uh, for them to get in are, are, are on this slide. Um, therefore, a, a comprehensive food safety plan uh, will be looking to address all of these potential sources of contamination. So in relation to HACCP planning, uh, microorganisms are included in the assessment of biological hazards. The three steps that generally need to be addressed are contamination, multiplication and survival. So a comprehensive risk analysis will help to identify uh, the likely sources of contamination, for example, on workers' hands, and you'll then need to put into place a control measure that reduces or eliminates the potential for this contamination to occur. So hand washing or sanitizing. In order to multiply to dangerous levels, microorganisms require enough time, the right temperature and a source of food. So food safety controls work at controlling one or more of these requirements, such as the product being temperature controlled. Survival is an issue if controls are not effective or not followed correctly and sufficient organisms survive the kill step to repopulate the product. For example, uh, not heating at a high enough temperature or for long enough. This cycle can uh, begin again. It's a, an iterative process and it, it can reoccur after a kill step. So you need to ensure that oh, post-processing handling and controls are hygienic. So a basic structure of a, a bacteria, we've just got a generic picture here. Um, the, the capsule is the outer, outer layer. It often has a protective coating, which can be slimy, which helps it stick uh, to surfaces and together. And that's quite important if you end up dealing with biofilms, etc. Uh, the cell wall is uh, made from a, a protein and sugar, sugar compound called peptidoglycan. That provides more protection. The cell membrane coordinates the passage of molecules in and out of the, uh, the bacteria. Cytoplasm, it's a medium for transporting molecules. The nucleoid is the location in the center with the uh, DNA material that replicates when the bacteria are reproducing. And not all of them have it, but a, a lot of bacteria have uh, these little flagellum on the end and these help with movement. So the next few slides, we'll be looking at some of the various ways in which bacteria are classified. Uh, this can help you to understand which tests to apply to your product and to find out specific information. For example, in shelf life testing for spoilage or pathogenic species. Pathogenic bacteria are linked to food safety and spoilage bacteria to food quality. There are some bacteria that are beneficial to the product and humans. These are common cells uh, and these can be used in um, products such as yogurt. So microbiologists often use the terms gram positive or gram negative uh, in relation to bacteria. And it, it's basically the, the name comes from a Danish physician named Hans Christian Gram. And he used an ultraviolet dye some iodine and alcohol to classify different types of bacteria. Uh, basically, gram staining, it's, it's a common technique used to differentiate two really large groups of bacteria. 
based on their different cell wall constituents. So the gram stain procedure distinguishes between gram positive and gram negative groups by coloring the cells red or violet. Gram positive bacteria stain violet due to the presence of a, a th the, the thick peptidoglycan layer um, in the cell walls and this keeps the crystal violet uh, present. The gram negative bacteria stain red which is attributed to having a thinner peptidoglycan, I knew I'd struggle with that name, uh, wall, which doesn't retain the crystal violet during the decolouring process. The bacteria can also be classified by shape. Uh, the names basically of the sh different types of shapes reflect what shapes they are. For example, uh, the, the rod-like ones are known as bacilli, and spiral or helical ones, uh, there are spherical ones, cocci, um, so there's all different types. Bacteria multiply by a process known as binary fission, which essentially means that they divide in half. So first, uh, the DNA in the cell is replicated. The cell walls then elongate, separating the DNA molecules. You see the process on the right-hand side of the slide. A cross wall then forms, gradually cutting the cell in half, after which the two cells separate and the process starts again in the new cells. So this is how under optimum conditions, bacteria can double in numbers roughly every 20 minutes. Uh, and what that can mean is that in 100 minutes, a thousand bacteria cells can become a million. You've probably heard reference to the, uh, the bacterial growth curve. Uh, here's a depiction of it here. It basically consists of four different phases in the lifespan of bacterial populations. So the lag, log, stationary, and death or decline phase. The lag phase is the time it takes for enough bacteria to multiply to start to proliferate in a particular medium, so food or drink. Once significant numbers are reached, uh, the log phase is a period of exponential growth. So that just goes off the charts. Um, then the stationary phase occurs when there's a, a balance between the number of cells and the available food in the medium. So there's no real additional growth that can occur. And after this, once all the available nutrients are depleted, cell death starts to occur and that occurs rapidly. How do we use this information to manage food safety? So it's possible to introduce measures um, called controls that prolong the lag phase. For example, uh, storing at or below five degrees C, adding preservatives to the product, or controlling the, the internal pH and the water activity. But we can also interrupt the log phase um, with kill steps such as boiling, pasteurization, high pressure processing. Food safety interventions tend to be made in the first two phases as uh, obviously the stationary and decline and death phases are pretty much characterized by a depletion of the nutrients in the food and also the possible presence of toxins, obviously neither of which are desirable characteristics for a food product. But just to add a little spice to it, uh, some bacteria are able to form spores um, these are formed under adverse conditions. 
So only two bacterial species are able to do this. They are the Bacillus and the Clostridium. But it adds another dimension of complexity to food safety controls for a number of products. Bacteria form spores when conditions are not ideal for survival. For example, when there are extremely high temperatures, where there's freezing or a highly acidic environment. Spores have very thick cell walls, uh, reduced activity, and they're highly resistant to these adverse conditions. Uh, a lot of them can even survive without oxygen, food, and water. So eating food containing spores is not an immediate food safety issue, but food that is cooked and left at room temperature can quickly become unsafe to eat as the spores then germinate and multiply without any other competing organisms to limit their growth. Some bacteria can produce toxins uh, which present a serious food safety hazard to consumers. Toxins are complex enzymes, usually proteins that attack other essential proteins in the body, therefore causing illness. The two types of bacterial toxin are endotoxins and exotoxins. Endotoxins exist within the bacterium and exotoxins are secreted from the bacterium as waste. Toxins affect the human body in, in one of two ways. Uh, enterotoxins impact the intestinal system, causing vomiting, diarrhea, etc. Uh, neurotoxins affect the nerve function and uh, they neurotoxins contain some of the, the most dangerous biotoxins on earth. Uh, for example, um, a very small amount of Clostridium botulinum per kilogram of body weight is required to induce a lethal dose. So factors affecting the growth in food. Uh, in this section, we're going to look at the range of factors that have an impact on microbial growth. These are basically divided into two main areas, intrinsic and extrinsic factors. So intrinsic factors are those related to the physical, chemical and structural properties of the food itself, whereas extrinsic are related to the external environmental conditions that, that we have control over to some extent. Acidity or alkalinity is one of the key intrinsic factors in microbial growth. Uh, most foods have a pH value between seven and four. So they're either neutral or slightly acidic. Only egg whites truly alkaline at a pH of eight. So if you look at the growth ranges for microorganisms, you can see that most bacteria grow best at or around neutral, which means that most foods support bacterial multiplication. Bacterial spores can survive at any pH, but germinate only above pH of 4.5. Um, pH, really controlling pH should be combined with other inhibiting factors such as temperature. Um, you produce a hurdle effect for food safety purposes. So for example, with salmonella, uh, multiplication will usually occur at a pH as low as 4.1 if all other conditions are optimal. But below 10 degrees C, salmonella will not multiply uh, below a pH of 5. If you add salt or preservatives, then that stops salmonella from multiplying below a pH of 5.6. So you can see just from, from that one example that 
the importance of considering a range of limiters to microbial growth and that needs to be balanced with obviously the desired flavors and presentation of the food. We can't just add a load of salt to everything. So water activity, uh, it's basically the amount of available water that can be utilized by microorganisms for growth. Water activity is measured on a scale from 1.0, which is pure water, downwards. Most pathogenic bacteria uh, require a water activity of 0.95 to 0.99. Most spoilage bacteria can't grow below, below 0.91 and below 0.6 uh, there's no microbial growth at all. Water activity can be reduced by dehydration or by the addition of, of other compounds such as salt and sugar. Gram-negative bacteria such as salmonella are vulnerable to low water activity. Gram-positive bacteria tolerate low water activity more easily. So therefore the, the flora of uh, cured meats is generally gram-positive bacteria such as Clostridium perfringens, Bacillus cereus. Uh, for those of you guys who've worked with food technologies to extend the shelf life of your products, then uh, you'll know that reducing the water activity of your product is one of the key areas that they, uh, they look at addressing. So human foods are an ideal growth medium for bacteria. Obviously, they're rich in nutrients such as protein and carbohydrates. Even a very small amount of food can support a, a very large bacterial population. So hence the important obviously for keeping uh, food preparation areas clean and uh, using sanitizers, disinfectants, etc. Some foods have natural defenses against bacteria such as uh, protective layers like shells and skin or antimicrobial substances within the food like etheric oils. However, uh, once the shell or skin is removed, broken or cut, then the protective layer is destroyed and the bacteria start multiplying within the food. Cutting particularly, um, for example in meat, uh, increases the surface area of the available product and the chances of contamination with bacteria. Therefore, mincing meat is extremely high risk due to the, the massive increase in the surface area. Is obviously a, combined with a high water content and the presence of abundant nutrients. Cut fruits are another high risk product. Um, the, the process of cutting food, you take the knife down through the, uh, the skin which contains the bacteria and then you're potentially introducing the, what was on the skin into the inside of the product. So there are a range of natural inhibitors to microbial growth present in many foods. Um, these can be like essential oils or natural biocides, um, ranging to strong acids such as in fruits. Some are present as byproducts from other organisms and others can be added intentionally, for example, uh, preservatives. Foods in their natural form we touched on it just in a couple of slides ago. They have their own inbuilt protective structures that keep microbes out of the main edible parts. Uh, for example, they have obviously shells, skin, rind. Um, the, but the act of subjecting foods to processing removes these protective structures. It leaves the food exposed to uh, microbial contaminants. 
further processing such as slicing, dicing, mincing and grinding, uh, that increases the surface area available to microbes to attach to and to feed off, and thereby uh, massively increasing the risk of introducing contamination. So moving on to the extrinsic factors, uh, temperature is one of the most important um, in microbial growth. Uh, every species has its own sort of limited temperature range in which it can grow and within that an optimum growth temperature. So higher temperatures can lead to thermal injury and death of microbes. Lower temperatures can stop growth. Doesn't kill them. Um, growth can resume again once the temperatures are optimum. So uh, heating um, will kill vegetative cells whereas cooling only pauses the growth until the conditions are favorable again. Most pathogenic bacteria are mesophiles. mesophiles. Uh, their optimum growth temperature is around about the same as the human body temperature between 35 and 37 degrees C. Um, mesophiles won't grow at refrigeration temperatures. So listeria is a psychotroph and it will therefore multiply at refrigeration temperatures below five degrees C. All vegetative cells will be killed at temperatures above 63 degrees C, which is outside the, uh, the so-called temperature danger zone. So most food production and protect, uh, preparation activities take place within the temperature danger zone of greater than five and less than 63 degrees C. And that's why we need additional controls in the production environment. So one of those, time. Time is an important food safety control as we're seeking to interrupt the lag and log growth phases. Given optimum conditions, bacterial populations double every 20 minutes or so. It's therefore imperative that foods are cooled quickly following a cooking process, the kill step, uh, to prevent the spores from germinating, uh, quickly establishing themselves in the food. Time's also crucial to heat treatment processes, especially in relation to achieving a consistent core temperature. Oxygen, another important one. The presence or otherwise of oxygen uh, can dictate which organisms are able to grow in a food product. So aerobic, um, which means they require the presence of oxygen, or anaerobic uh, means they require the lack of oxygen. Uh, they're the two extremes. Um, but within between those two, you have facultative anaerobes and aerobes, and they can grow in either condition, although they may favour one. So similar to the requirement for having free water in the water activity, it's uh, the amount of free oxygen that determines growth or otherwise. So removing free oxygen by adding gases uh, canning or vacuum packing foods that can slow down or kill the aerobic flora that gives the opportunity then for the growth of anaerobic bacteria so you still need to uh, refrigerate vacuum packed meats for example relative humidity is a, another factor in the growth of microorganisms uh, relative humidity is basically the ratio between the actual amount of water present in the air and the maximum amount of water vapor the air can hold at a given temperature. 
So relative humidity feeds into the development and deployment of uh, specific types of packaging. For example, in low RH, uh, the food may lose moisture and become undesirable. But with high relative high humidity foods, they have a low water activity and they can become spoiled. So lower temperatures are associated generally with higher relative humidity. And one group of microorganisms is inhibited or destroyed in the presence of others in the same environment. It's called microbial interference. When two or more groups inhibit each other, we can state that there are antagonisms between them. For example, uh, Staphylococcus doesn't mult multiply in the presence of Pseudomonas, E. coli or Streptococcus because uh, those other ones consume the amino acids that staph require to survive. Lactic acid bacteria create acidic conditions which can inhibit or kill many of the pathogenic and spoilage bacteria. Therefore, some are added to various foods to offer protection against spoilage, for example, in yogurts. And now we're just going to spend a few minutes looking in more detail at some of the, the key bacteria of concern um, in terms of being pathogens. First up, uh, coliforms and E. coli. Uh, these organisms are significant for a couple of major reasons. Coliforms are still used mainly as indicators of process hygiene in the food industry. And some strains of E. coli are associated with significant foodborne illness in humans. For example, uh, you'll have all heard of E. coli 0157H7, and that causes a condition called hemolytic uremia syndrome. There's a long-standing assumption that the presence of coliforms in a facility or product indicates recent contamination with faecal matter, and that's because they're present in the guts of warm-blooded animals. However, you know, sort of more recent knowledge on their wider distribution in nature has led to a bit of a re-evaluation of their use as an indicator of process hygiene. Um, increasingly, other organisms such as Enterobacteriaceae are being used instead. Principal growth characteristics for E. coli are um, they prefer water activity in excess of 0.93, pH range from 4.5 to 9 ideally. It can grow in a temperature range from 7 to 46 degrees centigrade, uh, but the optimum is between 30 and 37 degrees C, so that's the human body temperature. In terms of lab testing, uh, it's generally quantitative for coliforms and E. coli, with specifications generally set at less than 3 CFU per grams for E. coli. Between 3 and 100 CFUs per gram is marginal, should lead to a, a proactive investigation of hygiene controls. It's, it's a bit of a what's going on scenario. Um, greater than 100 CFUs per gram, it should be a trigger for a full investigation into uh, controls, hygiene in the facility and processes. If you're looking at uh, potable water supply in a plant, then uh, E. coli is uh, an organism to test for and it should be not detected in 100 millilitres of each water sample. Listeria monocytogenes is ubiquitous in the environment and it causes a 
listeriosis, which is a disease that can be severe, even fatal for some at-risk population groups. Um, these include sort of pregnant women, immunocompromised, very old and very young. Unlike most other pathogenic bacteria, Listeria monocytogenes can grow well at uh, minus 1.5 degrees up to about 45 degrees centigrade. So this characteristic makes it especially hazardous in long shelf life refrigerated products. So that's anything over five days, really, uh, according to the regulations. Um, contamination of the product with Listeria mono during processing and packaging can lead to dangerous levels of the bacteria being present. Food Standard Code contains specific reference to Listeria monocytogenes in Schedule 27, Section 4. Uh, that's the, the schedule uh, which talks about microbiological limits in food. So the Food Standard Code states that uh, ready-to-eat food in which the growth of Listeria monocytogenes can occur should be tested and that it should not be detected in 25 grams of product from five samples. In products where Listeria monocytogenes will not grow, testing results should show less than 100 CFUs per gram in all five samples. So high-risk products for Listeria include uh, cheeses, cut fruits, ready-to-eat products such as salads. In standard 1.6.1, section four of the Food Standards Code, there's a, a definition of the product characteristics under which Listeria monocytogenes will not grow. So there's a long list there. Uh, you're basically looking if the food has a pH of less than 4.4, irrespective of water activity, it will not grow. If the food has a water activity of less than 0.92, regardless of pH, it will not grow. Uh, if the food has a pH of less than 5 in combination with a water activity of less than 0.94, it won't grow. Um, also, from a, a regulatory perspective, if the food has a refrigerated shelf life, uh, no greater than 5 days. So if you look at uh, point 3B in this table, um, which basically talks about fresh cut and packaged horticultural products. Um, you may remember obviously last year there was a, a huge uh, listeriosis outbreak in Australia linked to cut rock melons, um, ultimately killed six people and uh, uh, unfortunately someone had a miscarriage as well. So these are serious organisms and can be extremely damaging to um, your customers and ultimately your business. Salmonella is a pathogenic bacteria that you'll all heard of. It's been implicated in foodborne illness outbreaks in Australia. Um, tend to see, see them every year. Uh, there was one particularly in September of last year. Uh, several confirmed outbreaks reported from different sources and led to the hospitalization of over 40 people nationally. One of the outbreaks was linked to uh, an alfalfa producer and another to eggs from Sydney. You probably will remember that. So the diversity of products that can cause illness from salmonella are 
reflected in its wide availability in nature and the fairly low infectious dose required to cause illness in humans. Salmonella thrives in conditions that include water activity in excess of 0.94, a pH range from 3.8 to 9.5, and temperatures ranging from 5 to just over 46 degrees centigrade. Because salmonella can cause illness with very low numbers of cells, the regulatory specifications are tight and limited to um, not detected in 25 grams of product. Detected in ready-to-eat food, a product recall and destruction should be implemented. Controls are even tighter for products such as infant formula, follow-on formula and cereal-based foods for children. Um, where it should be not detected in 25 grams from up to 60 samples. So one of the tests you'll see recommended for products that undergo post-processing handling is for Staphylococcus aureus. Reason for this is that the organism lives on the hands and in the mucosal tracts of humans and warm-blooded animals, so it's in your nose. Its presence in the product or the production facility is a clear indication of unhygienic processes or a breakdown in hygiene protocols. Illness is usually caused by ingestion of a preformed toxin that rapidly causes abdominal pains, dizziness, vomiting and weakness. Staph aureus can grow at water activity levels uh, in excess of 0.83. Uh, pH range between 4 and 10 and temperature range between 7 and 48 degrees centigrade. Lab testing is quantitative and specifications can vary considerably depending on the product and the expected shelf life, uh, but generally 100 CFUs per gram is acceptable. Up to 1000 is marginal, requiring a, a review of the controls and, and over, over 1000 CFUs per grams should trigger an, uh, an investigation into root cause and a review of your controls. Greater than 10,000 is basically uh, potentially hazardous and should um, really instigate a disposal and product recall. So Bacillus cereus, uh, one of the, the key weapons, we touched on it earlier, that Bacillus cereus has in its arsenal um, that all the previous organisms didn't is the ability to form spores. So uh, the vegetative cells have all the characteristics of the previous organisms described, but apart from this one key survival tactic. Bacillus uh, cereus is therefore of significance um, if foods improperly cooked and then not refrigerated sufficiently before consumption. So spores can survive cooking temperatures below 100 degrees C and they'll begin to germinate during the cooling process. Once germinated, all the other competition's been wiped out by the cooking process. Um, so they pretty much have a free run to multiply uh, ad hoc. It's particularly important and causes illness in fried rice. So we see that in the um, takeaways. Psilocyrus uh, causes illness through two different types of toxin. Um, one's preformed in the food, emetic, uh, and one that grows in the intestines, diarrheal. So as you can see from the table, the optimum range for the preformed toxin to be produced is around 12 to 15 degrees C. 
So uh, the Food Standards Code um, stipulates rapid cooling processes for potentially hazardous foods that can support the growth of Bacillus cereus. That's found in Standard 3.2.2, Food Safety Practices in Section 7. Uh, the Food Standard Code states, uh, food business must, when cooling cooked potentially hazardous food, cool the food within two hours from 60 degrees to 21 degrees C, and within a further four hours from 21 degrees C to 5 degrees C. So the other spore former of significance in the food industry is Clostridium perfringens. It's one of the most common causes of food poisoning. Improperly prepared joints of meat and poultry are the key vectors in causing illness, along with food that's being prepared properly but left to stand at room temperature for too long. So that allows the spores to germinate and grow unchecked. Again, optimum growth range for all of these pathogens are the human body temperature. Specifications, uh, if you're doing some testing for Clostridium perfringens, they range from less than 100, satisfactory in ready to eat products, to over a thousand, which is unsatisfactory, uh, and you'd have to sort of review your controls. Over a hundred thousand CFUs per grams is potentially hazardous, and you would require um, implementing a recall and product disposal program. When it gets to these sort of levels, contaminated product, it can't be reworked or reprocessed due to the potential for toxin formation in the food. So uh, you just need to get rid of it. Clostridium botulinum is one of the most deadly foodborne pathogens with a lethal dose of its toxin being just 1.3 to 2.1 nanograms per kilogram of body weight in humans. It's a gram-positive spore-forming anaerobic rod-shaped bacteria. It's present in the soil and on the surface of all foods. So the toxin does the damage, it attacks the nervous system and it kill, can kill an adult with a dose of around 75 nanograms. The toxin's inactivated by holding food at 100 degrees C for 10 minutes. Growth can be prevented by high acidity, a high ratio of dissolved sugar, high levels of oxygen, very low levels of moisture or storing at temperatures below three degrees C. So the canning process has been designed specifically to ensure that Clostridium botulinum can't proliferate in the low oxygen environment of the can. So just moving on to uh, laboratory analysis, um, just a bit of background information here, what the tests mean, etc. So will help you decide which tests are best for you. Some of the tests are called presence absence. They're appropriate where you need to quickly find out whether a, a specific pathogen's in your product. Uh, for presence absence tests, the specification is usually not detected in 25 grams of product, and it's generally a regulatory requirement. So for example, in ready to eat foods that support the growth of listeria, you should use a presence absence test. Enumeration tests or quantitative tests. Uh, they're useful when a pathogen can be present in the food but at levels that are too low to cause illness because the formulation of the food will prevent widespread growth of the organism. 
So taking listeria again as an example, in foods that don't support the growth of listeria, and remember we saw the, the table in one of the previous slides which gave the specifications for that. So you'd do an enumeration test uh, and the special specification for this would be less than 100 CFUs per gram. These specs are found in the regulations for a range of foods. So uh, food standards code, schedule 27 microbiological limits in food. Labs offer uh, rapid and traditional methods for testing foods. Um, this simple graphic just compares and summarizes some of the key differences between uh, something like an ELISA test and the Australian standard methods for pathogens such as Listeria and Salmonella. Both are NATO accredited but the ELISA testing will take half the time, less resource intensive than the Australian standard and therefore uh, cheaper. So occasionally you may receive notification of a presumptive or a suspect result um, and wonder what it means. For example, in the case of listeria, uh, basically what it means is that the generic first part of the test has detected a potential positive, which, which requires further confirmation prior to issuing a certificate of analysis. So sometimes a suspect organism is the target one, for example, listeria monocytogenes. Uh, other times though, it's another similar organism. Um, for example, with Listeria, there are now uh, 20 species identified, only one of which you are looking for, which is Listeria monocytogenes. So therefore, if doing a presence absence for Listeria, we'd need to test further in order to confirm that it is actually Listeria monocytogenes. On a, a broad, taking a broader look, why do we undertake micro testing on food products in the first place? Um, surely, uh, you know, if we have kill steps in place and sufficient controls that ensure our products aren't contaminated, is lab testing still really necessary? Probably. Uh, end product testing can throw up issues post kill step. So that's where contamination is introduced to the product once it's been cleared of other microbes. So if contamination occurs at this stage, the lack of any uh, competing organisms will mean that the new organisms will be free to grow without competition. Lab testing is also a very useful verification step that all your processes and procedures and controls are working correctly. So because of this, basically lab testing is a requirement of food regulations globally and part of any contractual arrangement with retail customers. They'll often set their own specifications for microbiological quality that are more stringent than the regulatory ones. So it's good practice, uh, keep all your certificates of analysis in your HACCP and food safety folder, use some simple tools to interrogate your results. We'll be sharing some of these um, tools and some templates for them in, in future webinars. Uh, for example, um, simple things such as trend analysis and comparing results for your environmental monitoring testing. You trend these over time and that can often give you advanced warning if the facility is moving out of control. So in terms of risk management, 
food businesses need to implement obviously effective controls to prevent the entry or minimize the growth of uh, pathogenic and spoilage organisms in the facility and in the food. Conditions favorable to growth could be in the product and the environment and therefore uh, a good food safety plan will address both. As I mentioned, future webinars are going to look in more detail at how this can be achieved at both plant and product level with further presentations on environmental monitoring, um, predicting and verifying your, your shelf life of your product, um, as well as presentations on um, in more depth on specific individual organisms and how to best control for them in, in specific food types. Um, for now, uh, I think we'll bring this um, to a close and obviously uh, hope you got something out of the webinar and look forward to seeing you back here for part two next month. Uh, we'll be focusing on yeast and molds and looking at spoilage organisms. So thank you again to everybody for attending today. Uh, hope you got something useful out of the presentation. This is the first uh, in our series and um, I'll be welcoming feedback on uh, specific topics that anybody would like to see in more detail. Um, we've got the next two or three planned, but we have some uh, um, capabilities for, uh, if we get a lot of requests for a specific subject, we can um, add that in as well to the series. So just like to thank you all again for turning up. You will be sent um, an email follow-up which will have a link to a recording of the webinar and a copy of all the slides etc so once again thanks very much for coming hope you got something out of it have a good day and stay warm thank you